Hello, my name's Grady Hendricks. I'm the author of the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slain Vampires, and I'm here today to talk to you about Dracula's penis. Have you ever really thought about Dracula's penis? John Shirley has. In his 1979 book Dracula and Love, Dracula's penis plays a large and prominent role. One character who's encountered said undead organ says this. I could see his need bulging. I could see the outline of his black thing writhing like a separate animal, trying to escape his clothing, snapping like an angry snake. His organ moved like an animal tied to his waist, nosing into me like an angry tomcat. Damp, hard as iron, yet it whiplashed like a moray eel, and the thing thrust, and I glimpsed it just as it entered the two cold golden eyes on its snout, and it was as big as a cat. What do we really know about vampires? I know quite a lot, because I've spent the last two years of my life when I could have been getting an advanced degree or helping others, reading about vampires, researching vampires, and writing about vampires. This is what's commonly known as wasting your life. However, now that the Red Death rules the land, I've decided to open an online academy, a boot camp for the brain, where I will assault your ears with petty trivia and worthless facts until your spirit withers and dies, just like a real school. The only difference is that my abusive college of useless knowledge won't leave you saddled with debt that will take you an entire lifetime of indentured servitude to pay off. So gather your courage, harden your hearts, lock your children in their trunks. It is time for learning! Super scary haunted homeschool. <laughs> what are vampires? Where do they come from? Why are they so polite that they have to ask for permission before entering our homes, and yet so stupid they can't seem to figure out doors and spend all their time scratching at our windows and begging us to let them in? Even more importantly, how are vampires made? Dusty old books say, Dead wizards, werewolves, heretics, and other outcasts become vampires, as do also the illegitimate offspring of parents themselves illegitimate and anyone killed by a vampire. But like a lot of things you read in books, that's just stupid. I've researched the folklore peasants from all over northern Europe, and they are quite clear that if seven children of the same sex are born into one family, then the seventh child will have a tail and be a vampire. Pregnant women who don't eat enough salt will give birth to vampire babies. Unbaptized children become vampires on their seventh birthdays. Suicides will become vampires after their death, and so will most murderers. Alcoholics will probably turn into vampires when they die. If a cat walks over a corpse, it will turn into a vampire. Also, if a small boy jumps over a corpse, that corpse will turn into a vampire too. Children born between Christmas and Epiphany, children born on Christmas Day, people eat the flesh of sheep killed by wolves, people who are excommunicated and werewolves all become vampires after death. Children born with all their 
teeth will become vampires. If your brother is a sleepwalker, you'll become a vampire. Christians who convert to Islam, priests who say mass in a state of mortal sin, godparents who stumble over the words of the Lord's Prayer, corpses left unattended, anyone who dies alone, babies suckled too long, felons, the battlefield dead, stroke victims, drowning victims, the first person to die in an epidemic, heretics, wizards, redheads, grumpy people, women of ill repute, and people who talk to themselves are all probably going to become vampires. Peasants in Northern Europe were really, really stressed out about vampires because vampires were enormous pains in their ass. There's a story from 18th century Russia about one peasant who died and the entire village was glad because he was a jerk. However, every night he crawled out of his grave and wandered back to the village, shoving people out windows, slapping them in the backs of their heads, and dragging them down the street by their beards. This was, in many ways, even worse. Eventually, it became so annoying that everyone moved out of the village and started sleeping in a nearby field. One day, Hunter wandered into town and bumped into this undead asshole who tried to drag him down the street by his beard. The hunter took his axe and chopped him into pieces. The end. The moral of this story, paper beats rock, rock beats scissors, and Hunter with an axe beats annoying vampires. From a village in Bohemia comes this tale of an annoying shepherd who died and then kept appearing to people who, eight days later, would die too. In an attempt to flatten the curve, the villagers took an enormous stake and used it to pin him to the ground by driving it through his body. As they hammered it through his chest, he complained bitterly and said if they were going to leave him nailed to the ground in the middle of nowhere, they could at least leave him a stick to fight off wild dogs. So they did. This turned out to be an enormous mistake because he used the stick to pry himself off the stake and immediately wandered back to the village. There he skipped the whole omen of death thing and simply began strangling people. Finally, the villagers put him in a cart and took him way out into the middle of nowhere where they nailed him to the ground using many enormous stakes driven through his body. As they worked, he would not shut up and complained bitterly about how much it hurt and vowed that the second he got out from under all these stakes, he was coming right back to the village where he was going to strangle every single one of them. They believed him and so they burned his body to ashes through the ashes in the river, the end. In Silesia, a shoemaker cut his own throat, but his family covered up his suicide so he could be buried in consecrated ground. Much to his embarrassment, his corpse immediately rose from the grave and began to wander around town, crawling in windows and lying on top of people as they slept. At first, when people complained, his family threatened to sue anyone who repeated this rumor about their dead husband. But when he began creeping into his family's home and trying to strangle them, they gave up on trying to protect his reputation and promptly had his body dug up, chopped into pieces, and burned. One of his victims, however, the household maid, died. And eight days later, she returned from the grave as a chicken. This undead demonic chicken chased down one of the family's daughters as she wandered through the woods, and then when it had her cornered in the darkness, it grew to enormous size and seized her neck in its giant vampiric chicken beak, chomping on her with great passion, leaving her neck swollen and sore, so swollen and sore that she couldn't even swallow a tiny bowl of soup for many days. As you can see, Vampires come in many different shapes and sizes. Some of them are chicken-sized. Most of them are unpleasant. And they come from many different places, most of them foreign and equally unpleasant. So let us begin our first class here at Super Scary Haunted Home School. Geography! 
Welcome to Super Scary Haunted Homeschool's Geography class, where we'll learn which disgusting vampires come from what terrible countries. Some people say vampires come from Transylvania, but really, Transylvania just means the land beyond the forest, which is a verbal shrug, meaning somewhere over there. Sort of the same as the Bible's 40 days and 40 nights doesn't literally mean 40 days and 40 nights, but just a very, very long time to be stuck on an ark. However, some of the oldest accounts of vampires come from Greece. What is Greece? Greece is a country in the Mediterranean Ocean that Mrs. Favell Lee Mortimer tells us about in her wildly popular 1848 travel guide, The Countries of Europe Described. The Greeks are very unlike the Turks. They are lively and warm in their manners and fond of talking. They love singing, though they sing badly. They delight in dancing and merriment. They give way to all their feelings, crying one moment and laughing another. They do not bear their troubles well. When they are unhappy, they scream like babies. A confusing place, Greece. It is the birthplace of democracy and Ariana Huffington. It has no economy, and yet its weddings are both big and fat. Many Americans are still unclear on whether they should say gyro or gyro when ordering Greek sandwiches. Don't ask Greek people to clear that up for you. They're equally confused. In Macedonia, they call vampires vampiras in the north and vampiras in the south. In Crete, they call them katakanas, but they most commonly call them vrikolakas, which is not a Greek word at all, but a word the Greeks stole from Slavic countries. Unfortunately, this has led to even more confusion because the Slavs believe that a man who is a werewolf becomes a vampire after he dies, which is confusing and caused the Greeks to decide that the word vrikolakas would mean both werewolf and vampire. Furthermore, some Greek vrikolakas are men who drink blood but are dead, while other vrikolakas are men who are still alive but drink blood, so they really have no idea what they're talking about. One thing the Greeks do get right? Blaming small children for their problems. In old-timey Greece, there was a belief that the smallest, skinniest, runtiest child in a litter was just waiting for an opportunity to murder their healthier, better-looking siblings. So, if more than one of your stronger, more talented, and attractive children died, then clearly your ugly runto was to blame. This is when an ancient Greek parent would turn to their weak and sickly child and punch them repeatedly in the head, saying, You are a Vrikolakas and you have devoured your brother. Bad Vrikolakas. Bad, bad, bad. In Greek, the Vrikolakas has to ramble about all week long, never resting except on Saturday night when he's allowed to return to his tomb and unwind. Most Greek villagers had nothing else to do on a Saturday night but punch their undernourished children, and so that was when they would descend on the Vrikolakas' grave and set him on fire. Greece may not have an economy or a compassionate approach to childcare, but they do have islands. So many islands, in fact, that they can spare a few of the uninhabited ones to deal with their Vrikolakas problem. The uninhabited island of Theresia is used as a Vrikolakas storage locker. It is the island aboard vampire, where, with nothing to do, no one to suck, and no way to die, the vampires of Theresia spend their days rolling rocks into the ocean like sad loners. Many Greek islands export their vampires to Theresia, and once they stop trying to build catapults to fling themselves onto passing ships, they start rolling rocks into the ocean too, which is a stupid waste of time, but better than singing badly or punching babies. In Kithnos, a man died. Because he was a werewolf, or a wizard, or the seventh child of a seventh child, or maybe even just a redhead, he soon crawled out of his grave and began wandering into people's houses during dinner where, without a word, he'd eat all their food at the end of the meal. He would break their plates on the floor with a cry of oompa and then run away. 
For the inhabitants of Kithnos, however, the last straw came when he climbed on top of their local church and, as one account says, drenched those who passed underneath with floods of urine. Frustrated and smelling like vampire piss, the islanders tied him up in a burlap sack and a priest hauled it to the nearest uninhabited island. The vampire was so angry about this that he got out of the burlap sack and chased the priest back to his boat, throwing his poo at him the entire time. But aggressive urination and feces tossing was not on brand for Greek vampires. The Vrikolakas from the island of Amorgos liked to walk around in broad daylight and gather in fields where they would munch on green beans. In the village of Pyrgos, one vampire returned from the grave every night to visit his wife, repair his children's shoes, chop wood, and fetch water from the well. The other men in the village thought this was setting the bar pretty high because they would prefer not to chop wood, fetch water from the well, or repair their children's shoes, and instead just sit around drinking all day. So they found the Vrigolakas in his grave and set him on fire, proving that dead Greek vampires have more chill than living Greek men. In summary, Greek vampires are confusing. They have too many names, sing badly, walk around in the daylight, pee on people, and throw poop at priests. But they are also generally chill and can often be found loitering in fields, munching on green beans, or living on uninhabited islands, bored out of their tiny vampire minds. Hungary is a different story. Master of the occult, Montague Summers writes in his 1929 study, The Vampire in Europe. Hungary, it may not untruly be said, shares with Slovakia the reputation of being that particular region of the world which is most terribly infested by the vampire, and where the vampire is seen at his ugliest. Mrs. Favoli Mortimer knows ugly. As she wrote in the countries of Europe described, The Hungarians are a much wilder people than the Germans. They are not industrious. They do not know how to make anything. Most of them cannot read or write, and they live like wild beasts in dens and burrows underground. Unable to read or write, Hungarian vampires are easily bored, often mooching into their former homes around dinner time to stare at the living as they eat, then silently slithering away afterwards, which isn't too bad until later that night when everyone at the table they looked at died. Mostly these were their relatives, because in a depressing but all-too-believable twist, Hungarian vampires like to keep it in the family, which is really dispiriting when you think about it. I mean, just when you think Uncle Sticky is finally dead, here he comes, back from the grave, to give you more unwanted wet mustache kisses and overly long, uncomfortable hugs. The ugliest tale of Hungarian vampirism, however, may not have been a vampire at all. Cower in terror and try not to die as you listen to this true tale taken from the authentic records of an actual Hungarian hamlet. On another time about evening, when a theologian was sitting with his wife and children about him, exercising himself in music, a most grievous stink suddenly arose, which by degrees gradually spread itself into every corner of the room. Hereupon, the theologian commended himself and his family to God. The smell nevertheless increased and became above all measure pestilentially noisome, insomuch that the theologian was forced to abandon his parlor and retire upstairs to his bedchamber. 
But when he and his wife had not been in bed a quarter of an hour, they found the same loathsome stink inside the bedchamber with them, infesting their very bedclothes. And they complained most bitterly of its smell, much to one another. Of course, there could be no possible natural or biological cause of such a terrible gaseous assault to the nostrils. It must have a supernatural source. So the next day the theologian complained to the authorities about this mysterious and loathsome odor of unknown origin, explaining that it could not possibly come from a single human being in his house, especially himself, and it must be therefore the work of Satan. The authorities were convinced and agreed to dig up the grave of his recently deceased neighbor where they discovered that his corpse had not rotted at all, but was still full of blood and also had long hair and fingernails that looked really terrible. Clearly, this was the source of the supernatural stink, and so they dragged his corpse out of its grave with hooks, cut off its head, its arms and legs, tore out its heart, burned it to ashes, swept up the ashes, and threw it in the river. Also, the theologian stopped eating dairy. At the same time, looking at this story, you know, apparently Hungarians lived in burrows, so why would you believe anything they have to say about vampires? Russia! A mighty country where people eat tiny fish eggs and then drink vodka to forget that they have just eaten tiny fish eggs. The land of Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Vladimir Putin. What kind of vampires could possibly hail from such a large and belligerent nation? As Montague Summers writes, It is no matter for surprise that in so sad and sick a country as Russia, the tradition of the vampire should assume, if it be possible, an even intenser darkness. We find indeed a note of something deformed, as it were, something cariously diseased and unclean, a rank wealth of grotesque and fetid details which but serve to intensify the loathsomeness and horror. The Russian vampire, loathsome, horrific, grotesque, and fetid. In Russia, if you have seven children of the same sex, the seventh child will have a tiny little tail and must be a vampire. If a vampire's hands get too numb after being crossed over his chest in the grave, he'll just use his teeth to chew his way into your home, destroying all the children and babies he can find before eating every single one of the elderly. Unlike some other countries' vampires, Russians don't just stop with one dead family member. They will keep chewing and chewing until every single member of their family are dead. Russian vampires are so intense you have to drive your stake into their backs instead of their chests because if you make eye contact with a Russian vampire, your head will explode from sheer terror. Russian vampires will suck the blood out of your chest or from the soles of your feet. They don't care. Russia calls its vampires oopiers, and if they can't claw or chew their way out of their graves, they will eat their own bodies. But if they do get out, they wander the land, peering in windows, lurking at crossroads, and attacking every single living person they find. And as if the regular Russian vampire in great quantities wasn't bad enough, there are also special super-terrible Russian vampires called Moroni, who are a cross between a werewolf and a vampire. A Moroni can turn into a dog, a cat, a mosquito, a toad, 
and when found in its coffin, it will totally freak you out by spraying blood from its engorged body, shooting it out of its eyes, its ears, its mouth, and its nose. <laughs> Russian vampires. Disgusting, aggressive, spreading lies on the internet, they can't keep their hands to themselves, and there are way too damn many of them. the sound of that racially insensitive gong, you know we're in China. What does Mrs. Favoli Mortimer have to say about China? And while we're at it, who is Mrs. Favoli Mortimer and why can't I shut up about her? Mrs. Favoli Mortimer, despite having no children, was one of the most popular children's book authors in Victorian England. And despite only ever having left England twice, she was also one of its most popular travel book writers. And she did not like a single country anywhere on earth that wasn't England. And, like a lot of English people, she especially didn't like China. To us, China is one of the most ancient civilizations on the planet with a long, distinguished history, which has given us paper, movable type, gunpowder, and sweet and sour pork. But to Mrs. Favell Lee Mortimer, it was just another disgusting hellhole. The Chinese are very selfish and unfeeling. Beggars may be seen in the middle of town dying, and no one cares. It is a common thing to stumble over the bodies of dead babies littering the streets of China. In England, it is counted murder to kill a baby, but it is thought no harm in China. Chinese vampires are not sexy creatures of the night who dress like they're going to prom, speak European, and act like they know which wine to order. Chinese vampires are called Zhangxi, and they are moldering corpses so stiff with rigor mortis that they can't walk. Instead, unable to bend their arms or legs, they must hop after their prey, long fingernails extended in front of them with stiff arms for stabbing. Basically, the Chinese Zhangxi is a blood-hungry pogo stick, and the only way to lay them to rest is for a Taoist priest to kick the crap out of them before cramming them back into their stinky graves. Taoism is a beautiful and ancient religion of great complexity that requires years of study to even begin to comprehend its simplest precepts. However, if you're a white person, you've probably mastered it by googling the term Taoism and reading the first page of search results, or by flipping through the Tao of Pooh. If you've ever gotten a yin-yang symbol tattooed to the base of your spine, or maybe gotten a coupon to a yoga studio, you're probably a Taoist master. So you already know that Taoist priests are divided into redhead priests who are calmer and listen to melodic metal and do stuff for living people like cure sickness and perform rituals, whereas blackhead priests are more intense. When someone dies, these black metal priests ensure that they are buried properly with the correct charms at the proper location so that they don't become a hopping vampire. If they do become a vampire, the black metal priest will beat them into the ground. Besides punching, how do these black metal Taoists eliminate vampires? With chicken blood, black dog blood, cherrywood sword, talismans, and sticky rice. Also very useful, the urine of a virgin boy. Join us on Saturday School for an extra credit session on Chinese Zhongxi. But for now, let's abandon China where the streets are paved with dead babies and return to a place where the streets are paved with cows. Because if there's one place that's absolutely obsessed with vampires, it's... Germany! 
Germany is not a land of illiteracy and burrows. It is not a land of dead babies used as paving materials. It is not a land of island full of bored vampires. Germany is a land of well-managed public order and well-managed bowel movements. Even before trains were invented, German ones ran on time. Even Miss Favoline Mortimer is a fan of Germany, setting the scene with her indispensable 1848 travel guide. If you were traveling through Germany, you would see fine hills and great forests. But where are the cows? They're in the stable. How strange it seems to keep the poor cow shut up in a stall. I am sure if you were a cow, you would much sooner be an American cow feasting on the fresh grass than a German cow eating bundles of stale weeds in a stable. I also cannot say German cottages are very pleasant. But Germans can play on the piano quite nicely, and the harp, and they sing very sweetly. But they are not fond of reading useful books. When they read, it is novels about people who have never lived. It would be better to read nothing than such books. One of Germany's great modern contributions to vampire lore has been Nazi vampires, who are not only the worst kind of vampires, but also the worst kind of Nazis. But even before the Third Reich rose to power, vampires existed in Germany in such great numbers. And these vampires were very, very stressed out. They were so stressed out that as they wandered the land in the middle of the night, they would strangle cows they bumped into out of their stalls with their bare hands. Which is probably why Germans kept their cows in stalls instead of out in the fields like Americans, because America isn't infested with stressed out Nazi vampires. Vampires came after the cows so often that in 1060 the Bishop of Bamberg forbade obscure burials in lonely woods because burying people in these super spooky places just led to the creation of more vampires. This was very reasonable. Another reasonable German tactic to reduce cow-strangling Nazi vampires was holding burials in the middle of the night so the dead couldn't see to follow them home. And then there were need fires. Need fires are bonfires started in the most labor-intensive and aggravating way possible by rubbing two sticks together, not by flint and steel. Peasants would build need fires at the entrance to their villages on the borders of fields to keep vampires away. If their cows had been infected by vampires who had attacked them, they would walk them through the need fire smoke to cure them. Vampires hated need fires, and in a strange twist of Venn diagram overlap, so did priests, who considered them an unchristian relic of a pagan past. But peasants loved them. Cows are not so sure. If you want to fight an outbreak of vampirism in your local community by building a need fire, please, I beg of you, make sure you know what you're doing before you start. In 1598, the plague broke out in Neustadt. John Kohler had read about need fires and convinced the local burgomasters that what this outbreak needed to stop it at the source was need fires, because clearly it was caused by rampaging vampires and need fires would keep them away. The burgomasters weren't thrilled by this suggestion, but Kohler made his argument very convincingly. And so all fires in the village were extinguished and a massive protective need fire was kindled between the gates of Neustadt. Cattle were driven through its purifying smoke, and then every fire in town was relit with brands taken from the need fire. It took all night. It was very, very difficult, and after all this effort, nothing happened. Vampires kept killing people, the plague kept killing people. The only thing that changed was the burgomaster's burn collar at the stake for being a necromancer. Vampires often appeared hand in hand with plagues. The blood-sucking side of fries to go with your double cholera burger with extra disease. 
Consider Marienburg Abbey in northern Italy. This Benedictine monastery was overrun by vampires in 1343, around the same time it became contaminated by the plague. Five years later, in 1348, the Black Death returned, along with a swarm of vampires who killed every single monk in the abbey except Abbot Wyo, two priests, and one lay brother. In Danzig in 1855, the Great Cholera Epidemic mutated into a Great Vampire Epidemic, with the vampires using this bacterial infection that killed hundreds with watery diarrhea as smelly camouflage to carry away their own victims. One account said that the fears of the people terribly increased the mortality. Translation, people became so terrified of vampires that they began to murder their neighbors, fearing that they were secretly bloodsuckers. The Germans, bless their hearts, added yet another disgusting twist to the disturbing vampire legend. During times of plague, when people died by the score and vampires preyed on the survivors, Germany made everything extra terrible, with their idea that the dead would posthumously and noisily chew their funeral shrouds, their burial clothes, and finally, their own bodies. So, let's say you were a peasant in Germany caught up in a plague situation which was really, really stressful. You wanted a break to clear your head just to get away from the village for a few minutes and go somewhere where people weren't rotting alive or shitting themselves to death. So you go out by the cemetery for some peace and quiet. Unfortunately, there you would have to endure the loathsome and apparently very, very loud and obnoxious sound of dead people eating themselves. This was very widespread. In Bohemia in 1345, a woman ate herself in her coffin. Martin Luther, before he nailed his 95 theses to the church door, wrote that he had witnessed this disgusting symptom in person. There are accounts of shroud eating from 1552, 1565, 1579, and 1581, all gruesomely describing how these undead cadavers would chew their shrouds, then gobble their own limbs, stripping the flesh from their arms and legs with their teeth, and chowing down on their guts. This made a lot of noise, as the dead lapped at themselves like, quote, thirsty animals, chawing, grunting, groaning, and slobbering like pigs, which the Germans adorably called porkers. The dead also gibbered and squeaked as they ate themselves, making it probably the only thing that could make the outbreak of the bubonic plague even more disturbing and unpleasant. Now, it is important to point out that these corpses are not eating themselves. As the ancient Dutch philosopher Erasmus said, dead men do not eat, and no German is going to disagree with Erasmus. So they had to come up with a new word for what these corpses were doing. They tried necro-nibbling, cadaver chowdown, death-snacking, and grave-gobbling before settling on manducation. The myth of mandication gave rise to the German legend of the Nachschere, or Shroud Eater. These unpleasantly named vampires would eat their shrouds and then themselves, and as they consumed their own flesh, their family members would fall sick and die one after the other, as if the Nachschere is eating their life force. Alternately, like a Silesian vampire who can turn into a chicken, the Nachschere could rise from the grave and transform into a pig, or a porker, and trot over to suck the lifeblood from their families one by one until they were all dead. The problem with Nachschere's is that they were easily identified if you just went to the graveyard and stood quietly and listening for the sound of manducation. 
Then you popped open the coffin lid, and if the body inside had its left eye open and held its thumb in its opposite hand, you just stuck a coin in its mouth to paralyze it and chopped off its head with a shovel. In his 1679 pamphlet, Dissertatio de Masticatione Mortuorum, theologian Philip Rohr takes on all the many facets of manducation and all their squeaking, grunting, gibbering glory. He takes great pains to point out that it is not Jews or birds who are making the dead do this, but Satan, although sometimes witches help. Rohr also gives remedies to prevent the dead from noshing on absolutely everything in their coffins, such as clasping the hands of the corpse together or rubbing earth on their lips. Other people recommended cutting out their hearts, known as decoronation, or staking corpses to the ground by driving wooden stakes through their hearts. But Rohr wanted his readers to know that this was wrong, 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 wrong. As he writes, It is both morally wrong, and physically wrong, and legally wrong to do these things. It is a sin against one's neighbor, for the reputation of the dead person will be most gravely injured by the horrible, degrading circumstances of such an exhumation, and then the hacking off of their head and the driving a stake through their heart. He's right. It's embarrassing to be dug up from your grave in front of the whole village, have your head chopped off and your heart, have a stake driven through it. The real remedy, Roar tells us, is prayer. Or you could try carrying a Bible around. Is the Bible expensive? Do you not have one that's light enough to carry around in your pocket? Maybe just wear a holy medal. Or you could just put a crucifix or a cross around your neck. Rohr pointed out that manducation most frequently happened when vampires were at large, which was mostly during plagues, which leads you to wonder if during a time when people were dying in great numbers and in a rush to get their infectious corpses into the ground as quickly as possible, a few living people might wind up nailed inside coffins and, like a Russian vampire, they might try to claw or chew their way out. Years later, in 1746, the French monk Antoine-Augustin Carmet wrote The Phantom World, in which he said that manducation was stupid, especially when Greek people believed in it. We can hardly believe and persuade ourselves that a nation so witty as the Greeks could fall into so extraordinary an opinion as manducation. The imagination of those who believe that the dead chew in their graves of the noise similar to that made by hogs when they eat is so ridiculous that it does not deserve to be seriously refuted. All right, so let's not seriously refute it. There aren't a lot of differences between pre-industrial revolution vampires who existed before the 19th century and the vampires we have today. Even though pre-industrial vampires do a lot of strangling and throttling, those are just expressions for attacks on the neck. So, you know, old-timey vampires, they're just like us. All the pieces were there. Even before the 19th century, vampires were restless corpses who infected others with their condition, ultimately killing them and turning them into even more unclean, inhuman creatures of the night. To repulse them, you wore a cross. To cure them, you dug them up from their graves and destroyed their hearts or drove a stake through their bodies to keep them from walking around, then burned them to ashes and threw the ashes in the river. These symptoms of vampirism would endure for almost two centuries before Bram Stoker put a tuxedo and a cape on them in 1897 in Dracula. Imagine the terror a plague held for a peasant in the 16th century. Everyone you know is dying for reasons you don't understand. There is no social distancing, no face mask, no hand washing, not even the basic idea of disease transmission. 
By the time the concept of a virus even exists, your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren will be on their deathbeds. All you know is that every night, the people you love, your family, your friends, your neighbors, they go to bed healthy and wake up sick. Too sick to work, too sick to take care of their children and their fields go untended and your work goes neglected while you try to attend to the needs of your sick neighbors, your sick wife, your sick children, your sick father, your sick servants, and ultimately, yourself. How does this thing get into your house night after night? You bolt the doors, you shutter the windows, you stoke the fire high, but every morning, someone else lies blue, cold, and lifeless. You live in the clutch of the terror of this thing that kills and kills and never stops. You can't keep it out of your house, and so you pray. You clutch a crucifix, you build need fires, but again and again and again, you find yourself standing in the graveyard next to your neighbors, and there are less and less of them every day. The one thing you do know is that during this time, death creates death, illness creates more illness, and its appetite seems unending. And if you're a public official, a burgomaster, or a military officer, someone who can see the big picture, how do you keep this contagion from spreading, leaving one silent, empty village after another in its wake? You know what sickness is, but you have never in your life, in all your experience, beheld something that killed on this scale, something that seemed so unstoppable, relentless, this invisible malignancy, this world annihilator, this monster, this koshi, this nakshara, this karakanas, this upir, this vrikolakas, this vampire. Saved by the Bell. That's all for this week. Next week on Super Scary Haunted Homeschool, you'll get a history lesson all about Serbian vampires, peasants with no noses, and why Karl Marx is obsessed with vampirism. There's a specter stalking Europe indeed. Join us then, and don't miss Saturday School, where we'll be talking exclusively about the Chinese Zhang Yi and this hopping vampire's complete body of cinematic works. Super Scary Haunted Homeschool is a thinly veiled attempt to get you to buy my new novel, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, available now, wherever books are sold. It's written by me, Grady Hendricks, who also wrote and produced this podcast. Music is by Ian Grimm and the Fictors, and you can find out more about me and my books at gradyhendricks.com. G-R-A-D-Y-H-E-N-D-R-I-X.com. See you next week.